From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Children are absolutely inundated with technology and screen time. So how can parents help their children navigate the media environment? On today's program, we'll learn about the latest recommendations from a Mayo Clinic expert. What we know is this. The most important source of interaction for children, especially young children, is face-to-face interaction. And we really haven't found uh, any significant benefit for screen time in children under two years or or 18 months of age. Also on the program, we'll help debunk some common myths about the cholesterol-lowering drugs known as statins. And the uncommon but scary problem of awareness under anesthesia. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Today's generation of children, you've got a couple at home or adolescents mm-hmm. at home, well, they're growing up absolutely immersed in media. From TV and video games to smartphones and social media, there is the possibility, actually, of 24-7 screen time. Well, of course, the media landscape is constantly changing. But what hasn't changed is that parents do play an important role in helping kids navigate the media environment. Last fall, the American Academy of Pediatrics announced the new recommendations for children's media use. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Nusheen Aminadeen. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, you serve on the executive board for the AAP's Council on Communications and Media that wrote those guidelines. So you definitely uh, have a good <laughs> grasp of what we're going to talk about. But here's what's interesting about this. You call yourself a tweetatrician. So you <laughs> yes. are a most immersed in social media, too. That is so true. And I have to say, it's one of the hardest things to make recommendations like this and also try to follow them to some degree to be a good role model. Um, as, as a pediatrician, I don't have children of my own, but um, but that is one of the big challenges that I know parents face. Pediatrician, how did you get that title? So about three years ago, Mayo Clinic was encouraging staff to join Twitter, to have a presence on social media, um, most importantly, to promote uh, good information, to be uh, counter uh, countering force for for misinformation, vaccine myths, other things, and also to promote the institution and the work that uh, we do here, uh, which is wonderful. Um, so at the time, I was very very social media averse, having been part of the Council on Communications for for a few years and uh, being worried about the effect that uh, social media and other forms of media had on children. So I uh, very reluctantly created a Twitter account three years ago, um, and it laid dormant for the most part, uh, for a good eight months. Um, What ultimately spurred me to get more actively engaged in Twitter uh, was the Disneyland measles outbreak uh, in California two and a half years ago. Ah, interesting. So that's where you first started tweeting away. Yes, absolutely. So um, you said that uh, you're concerned or there's worry about the effect of social media on on kids. What are you worried about? Well, there are a couple different areas that we worry about. Um, The big one is just that when you are sedentary, um, spending time in front of media, whether it's passive or interactive media, it displaces time that would otherwise be um, active time, uh, whether it's doing chores or being outside playing, participating in sports. Um, And uh, so we worry about uh, 
a known correlation between screen time, sedentary activity, and increases in body mass index for children of all ages. Um, the other things that we worry about more with social media are safety concerns. Um, one of my emeritus colleagues, Dr. Dan Broughton, uh, who is really a legend in the field of, of child abuse and neglect, um, had pointed out that uh, really a number of children run into situations online where information is solicited from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes children being trusting or being unaware of what potential dangers are out there can, can share a little too much information. So we worry about that as well. Uh, because I've got a kid who is no doubt going to end up to be a lawyer or a politician, <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do, but he says, he, and again, 12, that a lot of this we don't really know. And you're, you're assuming, Mom, that it's going to end up being bad, the effect that all of this social media and that screen time has on kids. And we don't know that it is. And I want to just trade him in. Yeah. Come well, on. You know, so, it's uh, hard to argue against that, isn't that's it? That's true. So what is the research, uh, because he's not here to ask this, what does the research show? I mean, how long do you think we're going to have to study the effect of screens on kids before we know for sure what to recommend? Well, we actually have a pretty robust body of research over 30 years. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that has shown that traditional media, which we consider uh, t television, um, radio, that type of thing, does have an effect on children's health. Um, what we have less information on is how interactive media uh, can contribute to that. So it sounds like you have a very savvy young man uh, oh, on your hands. <laughs> serenity now. <laughs> All right. So let's go through those recommendations um, from the Academy uh, and start with little babies, babies and toddlers. What, what do you recommend? So, um, I should give you a little bit of background first. Um, uh, in 2011, we had come out with our very first policy statement for media use in children under two years of age. That was right around the time that uh, iPads hit the market. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as, as you know, I'm sure, uh, research tends to lag behind technology development. And so, we had gone with the recommendation at that time for no media use, no screen time for children under two years of age. But then, just in, the mat in a matter of a few years, this whole interactive app business exploded. Uh, and so we had to take that into account with our new recommendations that came out last fall. Um, what we know is this. Um, number one, the most important source of interaction for children, especially young children, is parent-child, face-to-face interaction. We know, uh, because we have good research on that, that that builds connections in the brain. That helps children with language development and other forms of cognitive development. We know that traditional media, passively watching TV, can be damaging to that. Uh, we also know that the that certain series that claim to be educational actually have the opposite effect. Um, and we really haven't found uh, any significant benefit for screen time in children under two years or, or 18 months of age. So, so no sorry. screen time? Is that what you just said? That is generally our recommendation, okay. but there are a few caveats. Okay. So we we finessed the recommendations a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to fit in with what people really are doing with, with screen time. Well, yes and no. Um, I think that the substance of the recommendations remains the same, which is that we want to limit screen time. Um, it, it shouldn't serve as a babysitter for children of any age, and that parents should engage actively with children, um, particularly if they're younger children. The, the caveats we did make, though, is that 
um, if you're Skyping with a grandparent, that's fine. We, we don't consider that screen time per se. That's interactive. And there's actually evidence to show that children as young as 24 months of age can learn words from video chatting with an adult. The problem, though, is we don't have a lot of good evidence uh, one way or the other. And so, again, we've finessed the recommendations a bit to, to take into account the real life situation that children starting from early infancy are just saturated with media. But we still really, as pediatricians, want to recommend what's best for children and what's ultimately best for development. When these uh, recommendations came out last fall, what struck me was the babysitting part of it. If you are sitting and watching with your child and talking with them about what they're seeing, that is is it almost a good thing. We that is that is what we recommend. So we still officially recommend no screen time aside from video chatting um, for children under 18 months of age. From 18 to 24 months of age, that's where the finesse comes in a little bit. Um, if parents want to use interactive apps or or do something more with children, we found that there's a benefit to them watching with children and and this is the key point reteaching afterwards. There has to be that interactive component, otherwise there's very little, if any, educational benefit. Okay. So what after the age of two? After the age of two, uh, well, we actually uh, broke the guidelines down a little bit. So under the age of five, zero to five, um, with uh, with uh, the caveat of, of kids under 18 months of age, uh, we've really said, uh, we've actually gotten more strict. We've said no more than one hour of quality television uh, a day. Um, what's interesting to note here is that uh, you really have to be careful about the programs that are billed educational um, versus those that are not. And I always recommend Common Sense Media as a great resource for parents to find out what, what's good. So so actually, officially, from two to five years of age, we now say no more than one hour of, of high-quality educational content, um, and we do recommend co-viewing. What is Common Sense Media? So it is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California that provides uh, ratings, both um, both crowdsourced uh, as well as from experts uh, uh, who are part of Common Sense Media for a number of different video apps, uh, television programs, uh, movies. Um, so when parents are looking at a movie that has come out in the, in the theater, they might say, is this really appropriate for my 5-year-old, mm-hmm. for my 12-year-old? Um, and I find that it's been a great resource. Hmm. All right, after the age of five, five to 18, <laughs> what do you have in there? Okay, so this is another place where we've finessed our recommendations. The old recommendations were no more than two hours, hard line in the sand. And again, it's not that we have abandoned that. We still recommend that. We just have put it into context. Um, and um, actually, I should uh, mention that the American Academy of Pediatrics on HealthyChildren.org has created the Family Media Use Plan, which helps parents put all of this into context. And what it does is parents can log on um, and they can personalize media plans for every member of their family, including adults. So, you know, if you're going to mm-hmm. ask your child to stick to it, you know, we have to That's also good. stick to it. Um, but, but what it does is it looks like there are this many hours to sleep, there are this many hours of school, this many hours for sports or chores or other things. And so technically, while we're not saying less than two hours, it ends up being less than two hours mm-hmm. when, when you take a child's other activities into context. The big message that we want to say that we want to um, put out here is that uh, we want quality, uh, video, quality media content, and it should never displace sleep, um, schoolwork or other important things that kids should be doing, including unstructured play, playing outside. Now, uh, Tracy can attest to this, but your committee is aware of how difficult 
difficult it is to police or enforce this, correct? A- absolutely. <laughs> a majority of uh, the members on the committee have children of all ages, and so uh, we tend to be somewhat uh, media savvy as well, and we have to turn off our devices during meetings. So, yes, we, we recognize that it's a challenge. Everything, I think, is, is a challenge in today's world, but our job as pediatricians is to give parents the best possible information, understand what's practical, uh, and help guide parents to make those decisions. You really got to take the device away, right? (laughs) Actually, that is one of the things that I recommend. You know, I think it's totally appropriate, and and one of the things in our earlier recommendations is to have a device curfew. So at a certain point uh, in the evening, you just power down um, and and leave the device out of the room. And for many, many years, we've recommended not having any sort of screen in the child's bedroom. That has been associated with decreased hours of sleep. Including television? Including television. All right. There's the latest recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Nusheen Aminadine. we got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll switch gears and talk with Dr. Aminadine about another area of expertise that she referenced, the recent measles outbreak. Hard to believe, isn't it? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Nusheen Aminadine. It does sort of rhyme, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and we ought to switch gears and go to a different topic, maybe something a little less controversial, but nonetheless well, a hot topic and, a, dif- <laughs> and yeah. a difficult one in a way. And that is the recent measles outbreak, including right here in the state of Minnesota. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, from January 1st to May May 20th, 100 people from 11 states were reported to have been diagnosed with measles. Measles is a childhood infection caused by a virus, and once quite common, it's now prevented with a vaccine. So, Dr. Aminadine, these outbreaks are what we hear about more often now, isn't it? Yes, that's right. One of the reasons that I got involved on Twitter is because I noticed that there was incorrect information being put out there. It's something that I face uh, almost every day, or at least weekly in clinic, um, dispelling myths about vaccines. And uh, unfortunately, when you get uh, to a certain level of um, non-vaccinators, you start to see these outbreaks, sometimes in pockets in communities like sure. we're seeing now in the Minneapolis area. Non-vaccinators. So, I mean, everybody sort of has, has felt that measles is a thing of the past, sort of like polio, that we've cured it, it doesn't happen anymore. And because of that, people become complacent. Is that the main reason that, that they are not having their kids vaccinated? I think that's a big part of it. Um, if you ask people... People like my father's generation, he saw his brother um, actually get stricken with polio um, back in India, and he was one of the lucky ones. He survived, but he's partially paralyzed as a result. Mm. And literally a couple of years ago, I had the mother of a patient who I was trying to encourage to vaccinate her children say, polio isn't really that bad. (gasps) And yeah, I think the, the truth of the matter is that vaccines have been a victim of their own success. They're one of the most amazing public health innovations we've had in the last several decades. So tell us a little bit bit more about uh, measles. Um, so uh, I, I will say after you've gotten your second dose of the measles vaccine, we estimate that, that probably it's 97% effective. I've even heard uh, higher. Measles is incredibly infectious in and of itself. So if you have a room of 100 people who are not protected, if one person with the measles comes in and coughs, 90% will likely get sickened with the measles. It's one of the most infectious viruses we have.
have. And so it's a very big deal. And you mentioned at one point in, in time, um, people just got the measles and seemed like they recovered and it wasn't a big deal. But actually, we find that when we start getting into, you know, a thousand people infected, we start unfortunately seeing deaths um, and we start seeing much more serious uh, side effects like subacute sclerosing pen encephalitis, um, which so is... that sounds bad. That's something it's, it's with bad. the brain. It is, it is with the brain. And unfortunately, it is fatal. Um, there's, there's no cure for that. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, normally when you think about the measles, you think about the rash and the fever, Correct. right? And that's what most people have, and they might have a headache and they get better, but it, not necessarily. Not necessarily, and there's oftentimes always a cough associated cough. with it with it as well. And so what we're seeing, um, so as of last week, as of the end of the last week, we had 77 cases in the state of Minnesota, which is more cases in the last two months than we've had in the entire United States in the past year. About a third of those kids have been sick enough to require hospital. The more common um, complications of, of measles that we see are pneumonia, dehydration. We've literally seen kids on vents, on, on, sorry, uh, on ventilators. These are kids whose lungs have been so severely affected by the measles virus that they have had to be intubated um, to have a tube put down their throat wow. to breathe. Now, when uh, the Disneyland outbreak happened a couple of years ago, that was people from all across the country coming there, and they were all together. Different up in Minneapolis, where it was a big part of the Somali population, right? Sure. Yeah. And so how do you, um, for the Somali population, for instance, what do you tell them? So as you mentioned, you know, one was an issue where someone coughed, let's say, uh, and then multiple people uh, were exposed to that germ. At Disneyland. Right, at yeah. Disneyland, at Disneyland. Um, whereas, you know, in the Somali population, what we found is that 10 years ago, their measles, mumps, rubella vaccination rate was 92% in the state of Minnesota, which is pretty good. Um, not perfect, but, but really pretty good. Over 10 years, however, that declined, and it's now 42%, so less than half of Somali children in the state of Minnesota are vaccinated. And I do want to stress, as the Minnesota Department of Health has been stressing, it's not a Somali versus non-Somali problem. It's not an immigrant versus a non-immigrant problem. This is an issue purely of vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids. So what we learned happened in the past 10 years is that uh, anti-vaccine groups sort of seized on um, this vulnerable population that's new to the country, may not speak the language right away. Um, and we're having some concerns about uh, about autism, uh, which, by the way, is based on a completely discredited report report from almost 20 years ago that has not been reproduced in any um, proper epidemiological study. So what we, what happened here in, in Minnesota is we had a pocket of unvaccinated children. Um, someone brought the measles in, and again, with that 90% uh, infectious rate, uh, multiple kids were sickened as a result of that. So what we've been doing, actually, I'm on vacation, um, and so for the last week, I've done seven talks in the Twin Cities area, meeting with members of the Somali community to hopefully debunk those myths. Uh, and encourage them to vaccinate their children. All right. Uh, make sure you get your kids vaccinated. There's no evidence that it causes autism, and there's some certainly some complications of the measles that you want to avoid and don't want to see your kids sick. Right. And finally, how can people find you on Twitter? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> they're going to. <laughs> I have a public Twitter account. It's at N-A-M-D number four kids. All right. Thank you right. so much for joining us, Dr. Immunity. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Still to you. come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert about statins. Lots of misinformation about statins. And later on the program, awareness while under anesthesia. How some people recall what happened during surgery. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. New research shows optimistic women live longer than their pessimistic peers. So we've known that there is some benefit from heart related deaths if people are optimistic. But the way this study adds to the whole body of evidence is that there were decreased number of deaths reported from stroke, from infectious diseases, from respiratory diseases, as well as from uh, cancers. Dr. Rika Sood says if you think about it, it makes sense. Optimism is basically a positive outlook for future. You expect good things to happen. If you're optimistic, you are less likely to be constantly stressed out. Stress does two bad things to the body. It increases cortisol levels, which decrease your ability to fight infections, and it raises your blood pressure, which increases your risk of heart disease. It's good to know that optimism is about 25 to 30 percent genetic. So what that means is it can be learned. Dr. Sood says you can start by recognizing and being grateful for the good things in your life. And in other news, swimmer's itch is an itchy rash that can happen after you go swimming or wading outdoors. Swimmer's itch is most common in freshwater lakes and ponds, but it occasionally happens in saltwater. Now, swimmer's itch is a rash. It usually is caused by an allergic reaction to parasites that burrow into your skin while you're swimming or wading in warm water. These parasites normally live in waterfowl and some animals. Humans aren't suitable hosts, so the parasites soon die while still in your skin. Swimmer's itch is uncomfortable, but it usually clears up on its own in a few days. But in the meantime, you can control itching with over the counter or prescription medications. Also, try not to scratch it. Cover affected areas with a clean, wet washcloth. Soak in a bath sprinkled with Epsom salts, baking soda, or oatmeal. And you can make a paste of baking soda and water and then put it on the affected areas. And you can prevent swimmer's itch by staying out of the water and rinsing off after you swim. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Statins are medicines that are used to lower cholesterol in the blood. And, you know, they're big sellers in the United States. I think statins are the second or third most commonly prescribed prescription drug in the United States. And for those with high cholesterol, statins work by blocking a substance in your body that's needed to make cholesterol. And they may also help your body reabsorb cholesterol that's built up in plaques on your artery walls. That's a good thing. You can get rid of that plaque. Now, statins can prevent further blockage in your blood vessels and help reduce your risk of heart attack or stroke. The reason that this topic came up is because a good friend of ours gave my wife, Kula, a book. And it was called The New Health Rules by Frank Lippman, M.D., and Danielle Claro. And it's a New York Times best-selling book. I started leafing through it, and I got to this one chapter. And the title of the chapter was Step Away from Statins. And it went on to say, if you're on a statin drug like Lipitor to lower your cholesterol, you may know that there's controversy surrounding these medications. And here's the clarity. Lowering cholesterol does not, it turns out, prevent heart attacks and strokes. We have been sold a bill of goods. The big deal about this is that millions of people are on statins unnecessarily, and statins cause... Diabetes, liver damage, nervous system problems, muscle weakness, and more. I figured we needed a second opinion from a Mayo Clinic expert. So maybe statins aren't for everyone, and they aren't without risk. The information or misinformation 
that's available can be confusing for consumers. Here to discuss statins is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kopetsky. Thank you, Tracy and Tom. All right, Dr. Kopetsky, we need the straight scoop. Can statins prevent heart attacks and strokes or not? Uh, statins can unequivocally prevent heart attack and strokes. Now, where does stuff like this come from? I mean, here's a New York Times best-selling book, and it says statins can't do it. Yeah, it comes from I think the the fact that statins don't reduce your risk to zero. Number one, number two is it's becoming very clear that lifestyle is extremely important. By that I mean if you are not fit, cardiovascular fitness, you know, being active and can can walk, if you do not follow a good diet eating good foods, then the statin benefits are severely limited, meaning uh, in one large study of people on statins, not on statins, if they weren't eating well, eating a, like a Mediterranean diet, the 40% of people that were on the, lot of the bottom part of the eating structure, so to speak, got no benefit from statins whatsoever in reducing heart attack or stroke. So you can overeat your statin. So it's a myth that if you're taking a statin, you can eat anything you want. That is absolutely not true. In fact, if you do anything you want, you may as well not take the statin. I mean, mm-hmm. it really doesn't help you much. And if I have patients that uh, I put them into two categories, one is people with disease. If they've had a stroke, if they've had a positive stress test, they've had a stent, they really need a statin. And everybody agrees about that. The second group are the ones that don't have disease. They never had a heart attack. They never had chest pain. They don't have, you know, any narrowing of their arteries. Diabetes. Uh, yeah, even diabetes, because okay. so many people are getting diabetes now, that uh, that's not enough. In those folks, I say, listen, you have two choices, either take a pill or change your lifestyle. And to me, it's a no-brainer. If you'll change the lifestyle, that's so much better than taking a pill. Are patients wanting to change their lifestyle and take a pill? Yeah. Oh, sure. No, they mm-hmm. want to do that. And oftentimes, we'll, we will go the, along that route and say, okay, you're, you're not eating correctly, you're not being active, you're still smoking. Why don't we start you on a pill? lower your cholesterol, and also have you start working on your lifestyle. The problem is you can't change your lifestyle overnight. It takes, you know, months to years. Say, bring you back in nine months, 12 months, eating differently, being active. If you've really lowered your cholesterol a lot with the medicine and you've done nothing to change your lifestyle, then it's all the medicine, we say, okay, let's keep you on the medicine. But if you come back in a year and you've really changed your lifestyle, you're starting to be active, you're walking every day now, you give up the cigarettes, you're eating more fruits and vegetables, and you're getting better with your cholesterol, say, listen, maybe we can back off on this pill because you've changed your lifestyle so much, that may be all you need. Would you say that there uh, are a fair number of people in this country who are taking the statin who really don't need it or shouldn't be taking it? Well, I think uh, there are a lot of people that are taking it that are taking it to the exclusion of changing their lifestyle. They think, if I take this pill, I can eat anything I want, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. What are some of the so- side effects that patients experience with statins? Things. One is uh, muscle aches. A lot of people get muscle aches. It's very interesting. If you tell people what they're on, it's a statin, they get more aches than if they don't know they're on a statin. Ah. But clearly, I've had patients, and I myself have been on six different statins. I couldn't wake up. I couldn't get out of bed one morning. I was so stiff. I thought I had rheumatoid arthritis. Is that right? Yeah. And so I and I stopped it on my own. It went away. I started up, and it came back. Hmm. So I believe that it's real. Number two issue to worry about is diabetes. Now, if you take a statin, you have a higher chance of becoming a diabetic. However, 
only people that become diabetics on a statin are the ones that were going to become one anyway, and they become it about three months earlier on the statin. They're people that have high blood sugars, they're obese, they have a big paunch, they have metabolic syndrome. Is it true that if you are diabetic, you shouldn't be on a statin? No, that's not true. Uh, that is not true. If you're uh, diabetic, you know, your risk for heart disease is higher, so those are the ones we try to get on statins. Didn't you say uh, tell us once that uh, uh, almost 50% of people who uh, are in the emergency room with a heart attack have diabetes? Yeah, it is almost that high because it's just a huge uh, instance of the population now that has diabetes. All related to obesity? Almost all related to obesity. And it's interesting, when a man becomes a diabetic, his risk for heart disease only goes up a little bit. When a woman becomes a diabetic, it really goes up a lot. Now, how do you explain that? Well, probably because we've got a bunch of you know, middle-aged men with big paunches that are that far away from being a diabetic. And women are a little different. Ah, interesting. Um, we got a, just a minute or so remaining. I want to ask you about coconut oil because it's gone, it gotten so popular. Uh, not only you eat it, you spread it around, you use it drink for it. massage oil, you drink it, you whatever. <laughs> Give us the lowdown on, on coconut oil. Is it all that's yeah. cracked up to be? Uh, keep coconut oil on your skin. Don't put it in your body. There was a study probably 40 years ago, Tom and Tracy, where they looked at giving people lard or butter or tallow, you know, fat mm-hmm. from animals, or coconut oil. Guess which one raised your bad cholesterol the most? Coconut, coconut oil. Really? Right. <laughs> oh, so delicious. Yes. Well, coconut water is a little different. It's you know sure. watered down. But I've had patients that come in and take a tablespoon of oil a day. They said, Doctor, I've heard it was good for wrinkles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, All right. Man. There's the lowdown on uh, cholesterol-lowering statin drugs and also on coconut oil from Mayo Clinic Preventive Cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Always glad to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, it may sound creepy, but it's possible. Awareness while under anesthesia. We'll learn more coming up. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, you've heard those stories of people waking up during anesthesia. They felt pain, but they were paralyzed and they couldn't move. Well, according to the American Society of Anesthesiologists, awareness under general anesthesia is pretty rare. Awareness, meaning that patients can remember something during their surgery, sometimes even pain while they were under the general anesthetic. Other kinds of anesthesia, like local anesthesia, uh, sedation, or regional anesthesia, where just part of the body is put to sleep, patients will have have some recollection of the procedure, and they'll remember, uh, but they're supposed to remember. They're not supposed to be totally asleep, but aren't totally asleep. Severe cases of anesthetic awareness happen infrequently, but research is ongoing to determine the causes of awareness and prevent it from happening. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic <laughs> anesthesiologist Dr. Tim Curry. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Curry. It's good to see you. Thanks. Dr. Tim Curry, nice to see you outside the operating room. And, you know, you were here before talking about something that wasn't really your specialty. I think it was genes, wasn't it? And the human genome and individualized medicine. And, and the education of it, which is the yeah, part of our specialty. He knows what he's talking about. I know he does. And then he said, I've got an idea. Let's talk about this. And uh, we all went, <laughs> <laughs> I just so, wanted to come back, and I thought it was a, it's an important topic for our patients. This has got to be an anesthesiologist nightmare. Yeah. It's uh, the thing that we all go and, and do everything we can to be professional to make sure that everything is working well, that we're providing the right type of anesthesia. And in cases where it's uh, challenging to prevent, um, it's, it's concerning to all of us. And when it does happen, or if it does happen, it's, it's, it's something we really take very seriously. Well, you said uh, anesthesiologist nightmare. I would say it's probably a patient's nightmare 
too, which is why it was made into a, the topic was made into a movie. Did you see that movie? I have not seen that movie. <laughs> and it, it's it's everyone involved with anesthesia, all the anesthesia providers, but the patients really they they fear it. Um, there's a we hear a lot. I'm more worried about the anesthesia than the surgery itself, uh, and this is one of the things they come and they talk to us about. How well often does it happen? Is it something that people should be concerned about? Well, I, everything about anesthesia you should be concerned about. You should talk with your anesthesia provider about all of those things. Uh, estimates are really vary, and sometimes it depends on how you ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them as low as 1 in 100,000 cases, more commonly about 1 in 10,000. But some of the estimates put it up to as high as 1 to 2 in every 1,000 cases of general anesthesia. And what really happens? Is it does the, the patient wakes up and you are not aware of it? Or, or how does it happen? There's lots of places where it, it could happen. You talked about some of them already, sedation, where you had a, a nerve block for the anesthesia and you're just getting um, uh, a light anesthetic so that you don't move around too much and you're comfortable. So at times we often hear, oh, I, I remember my colonoscopy. I, I remember my anesthesia. That's one type of it, and that was sort of not intentional um, to, to put make someone a completely amnestic. A lot of people remember what was that the word? amnestic. Okay. Meaning you don't have those memories. <laughs> okay. uh, you don't form those memories. You don't recall it. Got it. Uh, and it's that awareness. So having amnesia. So anesthesia really does, we want three things. We want the patient not to move. Delicate surgery, you don't want to be moving. So um, immobile. You want them not to hurt. So you want the analgesia, and that's what that is. And then you want them amnestic, meaning they don't remember. Those are really sort of the th- as well as you know getting through as safely as possible and having good outcomes as well. There's other places where people think they remember the surgery itself, and that's when they're in the operating room before the surgery. They're going under the anesthesia or the waking up, and that's a time when you're starting to reform those memories. But what we're really worried about is in a, a situation where you're intentionally supposed to be under complete anesthesia, general anesthesia, unconscious, not aware, and that's when they're forming memories and having recall of that. Isn't it true that we don't really know how an anesthetic works? Yeah, and people have been looking at that since it first started back in the 1840s. Um, no one knows exactly what it probably has something to do with receptors and channels, um, but how it makes that in brain, the brain not mean, forming uh, yeah. within the brain, yeah, how it's making that brain not form those memories is, is really kind of unknown along the way. And p- people are trying to figure out how they work and, more importantly, invent new ones and better ones that have less side effects. Um, but, no, we don't know exactly how it all works. Because uh, you're a bit interested in genetics as well, is there a genetics piece to this? I mean, if you give the same anesthetic to the three of us, the same anesthesia to the three of us, that all three of us wouldn't react to it the same way? Yeah, there's lots of reasons why that might be. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, age plays a role. Sex probably plays a role. Um, someone uses recreational or, or drugs of abuse, um, that can play a role. Someone who drinks a lot of alcohol, um, people who are very sick, people who are um, scared, people who have had it before. And that may be where the genetics come into it. So we know that people who have had awareness once probably are at risk of having it again. And that's a place where research is starting to go now and, and, and try to look at that. And we're looking at that in some of our data, too. Yeah. So tell us about the research. What what are, what are you studying? <clears throat> so the areas of research that people are looking into is, is, one, how do you make drugs that are more effective, um, drugs that are more effective with less side effects? Because one of the problems is there are some surgeries where the risk is higher. So trauma surgery, emergency surgeries, um, when they have to get a baby out. Um, from a pregnant woman, either at risk of uh, life or death to the the mother or the baby. Those are situations where the anesthesia may not be able to deliver as much as you want, or you have to deliver it very quickly, um, putting people at greater recall. What are their drugs that don't have the side effects that would allow us to use more there? And there's a lot of work that's been going into it and some of the work being done here in our trauma centers and our emergency rooms um, from the Department of Anesthesia. There's work in how do you prevent it? Um, is there a way to use a monitor, um, the, these brain function monitors that are now on the market? Do those monitors allow you to predict who is going to be able to remember or not remember? Or are there other 
signs that would allow you to do that. Um, and we use those in combination with lots of different uh, ways to do it. They're probably better at titrating the drug, using uh, adjusting the dose that we give, than preventing awareness, but those are things that um, can be used. And then ultimately finding out who's at risk. Who can we tell someone and counsel on that and, and maybe change the way that we deliver our anesthesia because we know that they've got a genetic predisposition um, where the drugs just don't work as well. Isn't the worst case uh, situation uh, back again to the to the operating room? The worst case situation where you have paralyzed somebody, which you can do, not so much in orthopedic surgery, but don't you often do that for general surgery? You paralyze the patient. The worst situation you paralyze the patient, yet they're awake. So they're they're feeling pain, but they can't tell you. Does that happen? And that's the one we worry about the most. Um, and that's why every time we use those drugs, they're specific drugs that are designed to relax the muscles in the body. They're used for a number of reasons. One is if we have to place a breathing tube, we want to relax the muscles of the jaw and of the throat to make that easier. Um, if a surgeon is trying to do surgery within the abdomen, they have to relax those muscles in order to be able to get to what they have to do uh, and not let the, and not the patient so the patient doesn't move. Um, those drugs will prevent you from being able to raise your hand and say, hey, um, there's, there's a problem here. Um, and so whenever we use those medications, we are especially alert for any other signs or symptoms where it would be. And we're very vigilant with all of our machines to continue to make sure that they're functioning properly and we're delivering the right dose. But, but that's the worst case scenario. Does brain activity show? I mean, how, how do you see that then? Well, there's lots of things that we look for for finding out, does someone have adequate anesthesia? Hmm. Um, blood pressure, heart rate, movement, um, these brain function monitors all can give us clues that we may or may not be delivering the, mo- the right amount. In most cases, we're able to sort of know that because we can look at the dose that we're giving. Um, so we can measure exactly how much anesthesia gas your body has within it. And there's been studies that have shown that if you have at least this amount, um, your chance of having any memory of it is, is very low. Um, the same thing with some of those monitors they can use to be predicted that way. And it has become more and more rare as time has gone on, right? I mean, you have so many monitors up there and somebody in there all the time watching things. It's It's pretty unusual for this to happen in today's age, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, technology is definitely helping out. Um, we've got more alarms, more alerts. We've got these brain function monitors. But the problem is is that where we're still at risk are the places where we're still at risk, and that is the things like trauma and emergency surgery and cardiac surgery in very sick individuals and, and, and that emergency cesarean section. So those things haven't changed. We still do those operations, and the drugs still have their side effects, and there's times when that risk is there. And finally, what should a patient do if they do have a recall after surgery? Um, the first is to talk to someone about it, and it's often the family members, but it should be your anesthesia provider or, uh, or a counselor. Um, the anesthesia provider can give you a lot of clues. They can tell you, for one, well, you know, we were giving you sedation for your colonoscopy, not a general anesthetic, and that's okay. Or you had a spinal anesthetic for your knee surgery, like I did, and I got to watch my surgery, which was you know, how I ended up being a doctor <laughs> as it starts. Um, or they can say there was a problem and talk with them and give them the right resources to be able to do it. Oftentimes, these patients will need counseling. They'll need psychiatric help. They'll need their family members to help them um, because this can go on to lead to further problems. And some people actually want to be aware while they're having the colonoscopy. So it, it varies from individual to individual. And there are certain surgeries where you have to be awake. So certain brain surgeries will have patients. We've got um, reports of patients that are playing violin during the brain mm-hmm. surgery to make sure that they don't damage the part of the brain that they need. So, it, you know, surgery is a remarkable thing, and the anesthesia now is so able to be tailored to the individual that there's lots of ways of doing it, and all of them all are, are, the, uh, are right. Um, but we want to avoid these, these sorts of problems. Yeah, well, better start playing the violin because you <laughs> want to be doing it while they're doing your sur- brain surgery. Awareness under anesthesia. Fortunately, it's extremely rare. We are with anesthesia. Anesthesiologist Dr. Tim Curry, thanks so much for coming. It's my pleasure. And that's our program for this week.
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.